Well, good morning, family. Hey, it's great to be with you. I'm David Kinneman. Uh, and as Britt said, we've been a part of the church now for many years in, in Ventura. My wife, Jill, who's here with me today, uh, and um, our three kids, Emily, Annika, and Zach. Uh, they're 16, 15, and 11. My two girls are teen girls. The rumors are true about raising two teenage girls. Uh, all, all sorts of fun, all sorts of hormones. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's a, it's a privilege to be with you to share. And we just absolutely love Britt and Kate uh, and the Reality family, the team of Ventura. And it's just a privilege. Our family has grown a ton. Uh, it is wonderful to be here to share with you guys and uh, open, open scriptures together. Um, I run this research company called Barna. Anybody ever heard of Barna Group? Sweet. It's a research company. I'm basically a geek. I'm a stats person. So um, like spreadsheets are my love language. And, uh, and I'm going to share with you a little bit of statistics today to help you understand what's happening in our culture. Uh, but first, we're going to be talking about um, this Matthew, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And so if you open up your scriptures, we'll read this together. We're talking about being people of good faith, being salt and light in our world today. And uh, we're going to use, uh, use this scripture as our jumping off point. Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop uh, that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for uh, this place, for the ministry of reality uh, here in Carpinteria, as well as in Santa Barbara and Ventura and all around. Lord, we thank you that we get to be a part of it, that we, uh, as your family, get to participate uh, in your restoration of the world through this church. And Lord, we pray that, that this section of scripture, this 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 imagery that you've used uh, to help us understand our mission in the world would become clear to us today, Lord, that you would give me words, ideas, clarity, Lord, as I speak uh, to help share with our friends and family, uh, Lord, what it means to be salt and light. We ask you, Lord, to be with us, that your spirit would come alongside us to open up those places where we have done something less than being salt and light. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a fun a fun time. Like last week, Britt talked about being salt and light, and he talked about this idea of creation, uh, the fall, redemption, restoration. There's four parts of the biblical story, right? Like things were created to be good, uh, then they got off track through, through humanity's sin, uh, then Jesus comes into the world to bring redemption into the world, and then, and then we get to be agents of restoration. So there's these four parts of the story. And, and God always intended to do his work through his people, right? He, he starts with Adam, and then he moves on to Israel as that doesn't work out. And then as that doesn't work out, he moves to the church. And so God intends to use us. This is pretty cool because we get to be God's agents in the world, right? Jesus is the ultimate king and priest, but we get to be little kings and priests in his image as we try to work this out. And so this is what we're talking about. How is it that we can be agents of change? Uh, Britt talked about last week the notion that we get to be salt and light, and the whole, the whole point of that is impact, to be people of influence. And so we're going to address some questions today. 
How do we get to work with Christ towards the personal and cultural restoration of our, of our culture and in our lives? What does it look like on a street level for us to be salt and light? Um, what does it mean for us to be people of good faith? This is uh, the new project that I had worked on, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about what does it mean for us to be people of good faith? So I'll use that phrase a bit when I talk about this. But this idea of being people of good faith is that we're about impact. Your life and my life should count in the world. We're to be agents of change in our families, in our workplace, in our schools, in our communities, um, in, our, in, the, in the government system, all throughout our culture. Uh, and so we're going to talk about what does this mean to be people of redemption and restoration, the fun part of that story, right? The, 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 the creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The fun part is this third and fi- the f- third and fourth chapters of that story. And so what we want to we sort of begin by talking about, and this is the area that I have spent most of my life now, my professional life for the last 20 years. I've been at Barna for two decades, um, straight out of college, read one of the founder's books, the George Barna's books, uh, started being, a, being a, uh, an intern at that company. And so for, for two decades now, I've been at Barna Group studying American culture, trying to understand through research, like, what's happening. We've done almost a million interviews in that time, online, telephone interviews, like, trying to understand culture. Um, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty interesting business because we get to do consulting for a lot of nonprofits and ministries, a lot of churches. We actually get to work with Hollywood Studios, helping them understand the faith market because they don't have any idea about this stuff. We were working with them recently on a project it was about the life of Christ, and uh, we were doing, they were doing a trailer, right? So we're sitting in one of their editing bays uh, down in Santa Monica, and, and she, saw, she was going through some of the, the script that they wanted to use for the, for the trailer, and she's like, she stopped midstream, she's like, wait, wait, you guys actually believe like Jesus didn't have like an earthly father, right? Like, like that miraculous, what do you call it, immaculate conception thing? And I was like, it was like she had heard rumors of people who believe such crazy myths, Right? And like her eyes got wide. It's like, yeah, I'm actually one of those people. <laughs> so this is the research that we do. And I want to talk a little bit about our cultural backdrop in order for us to understand what it means for us to be salt and light. Okay? So to be salt and light, one of the first steps is for us to understand what's happening in our culture. All right? And there's two major trends that are happening for today's Christians that I want to just talk with you about today. First is irrelevance. Irrelevance is the notion that faith doesn't matter, that, that it doesn't really matter what faith you follow. If you're spiritual, that's great, but, but Christianity is really kind of like it's an old religion. It doesn't really matter in the world. Um, we know from our research we spend a lot of time studying millennials who are teenagers and young adults. We see a lot of young people today. Uh, and millennials are a fun, like amazing generation that I think God is going to use for great purposes. However, we know that from the research, 59%... That's three in every five millennials who grow up as a Christian will end up walking away either from their faith or from the church. They'll be a prodigal or they'll become a nomad. And this is the first generation that is really struggling with their faith in some significant ways. Um, and, And so, listen, irrelevance is more than just about millennials. There's a whole view today towards today's church that actually Christianity doesn't matter when we did our interviews, more than half of Americans say that all the social good, the, the work with poverty and other kind, like homeless and all the other good things that is happening in the world, in, in our culture today, that it would happen with or without people of faith. And that's actually a complete mistake. Like, like a lot of the good things that are happening in our world are actually from Christians, but people don't understand that at all. 
Um, they don't understand that education and healthcare and a lot of the ways that our culture is organized actually come from a Christian tradition. It's interesting because Christianity is actually so relevant to the air that we breathe and the structure of our society that it has become irrelevant, right? And, and so uh, irrelevance is a really powerful and challenging reality for us to, to think about, um, and, and this idea of people who grew up as Christian but who don't stay connected. My, my mother-in-law is a lifelong Christian but not really a very active churchgoer, all right? So there's always a good time for a mother-in-law story, I think. <clears throat> We're watching the Discovery Channel a few years ago when she was visiting our house. She lives in Seattle. And uh, during one of the commercial breaks, it was a show about like pumas and tigers and lions and big cats. And so during a commercial break, my mother-in-law, who's a lifelong Christian, says, you know, Dave, in my next life, I'd like to be a tiger. And I was like, wait, wait, what? She's like, yeah, when I'm reincarnated, I would like to be a tiger. What do you say to your mother-in-law <laughs> at that moment, right? I, this, is, this is honestly what happened. I was like, in my brain, I'm like, um, you know what, Janice? They are beautiful animals. That's the best I could do at that moment. <laughs> I got an F at being salt and light that day, guys. But I mean, what do you do, right? So, so here's the deal. The, then for her next birthday, my wife, who's almost as big a troublemaker as I am, got uh, a greeting card with a picture of a tiger on the front, <laughs> blank on the inside. We've got to come up with our own, like, inscription. And so I was like, Jill, what should I say? Like, happy birthday, Janice. You're almost there. I was like, Jill, your, your mom is a tiger mom. You realize that. <laughs> Earning your stripes every day, you know, happy birthday, right? Like, there's all sorts of comedic possibilities with this. So what I did right was, happy birthday, Janice. I hope your wildest dreams come true. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. You can judge me if you want, but that's, that's the truth. <laughs> all right, so irrelevance is what's one aspect of what's happening in our culture, where millions and millions of Americans believe that they're Christian, and they think that they're, like, they've got it all down, and they may or may not be a part of a church, and they may or may not have, like, all the right parts of orthodoxy. And listen, we, we actually probably fall in that camp sometimes more than we like. Jesus himself actually says to one of his disciples, get behind me, Satan, when, when, when one of the disciples gets it wrong, right? I didn't say that to my mother-in-law that day, luckily. Uh, but, but this idea of how it is that we're going to live in a, a culture that views faith as irrelevant is one aspect of what we're, we're struggling, what we're contending with in our culture. Now, the second perception, the second big challenge is actually really becoming like it, it's front and center for us now. It's been rising in importance in our research over the last five years, and it's reaching like this tipping point. And that's the idea that Christianity is extremist, that it's not just like you can ignore it. They actually believe that Christianity is something that does harm in the world. Let me show you a couple of statistics. 46% of Americans believe that religion is part of the problem. Now, first, we could agree with that. Even Jesus himself comes to abolish religion and religiosity. And to the degree that we are self-righteous, we are just as sinful as the unrighteousness in the world. Right? And so, so religion is part of the problem that we face today. 
And we have to acknowledge that. And sometimes the religiosity in our own hearts is some of the, the challenge that we're facing. But look at the other percentage. It says 42% say that people of faith, that Christians are actually part of the problem that our culture is facing. And, and this is what's starting to happen is that people are starting to say, you know, religion isn't just like irrelevant. I don't just have to ignore it. We have to ha- actually have to like do away with it. We have to like work hard not to have it a part of our shared culture. We don't want it to be like too intrusive in our lives. Let me show you. This is a, a picture from Instagram that came after the Paris attacks from last fall. And it says, friends from around the whole world, thank you for hashtag pray for Paris. Check it out. But we don't need more religion. Our faith goes to music, to kisses, to life, champagne, and joy. Hashtag Paris is about life. Only the French, right? Uh, love champagne more than religion. Uh, but, 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 but this is the idea. Like they, they actually recognize, and in, that me, in the moment of grieving, we could understand why a culture would say like religion is part of the problem. You see how that works, right? Terrorism, violence, these are, like, these are the bad outworkings of religion. And, and, and so you can see how this is starting to affect us. But here's the deal. What's happening is it's not just about religious violence, we're actually seeing in the research now that people are starting to say that what you believe, how you live, is actually a form of social extremism. You, you could actually be like socially extreme. There's an article recently about Franklin Graham, who's the son of Billy Graham, the fam- famous evangelist, who described him as the religious extremist Franklin Graham, right? Not because he's advocating violence, but because he's advocating a certain way of life, of thinking. And so let me show you a few more statistics here. 93% of Americans say that if we were to use religion to justify violence, that would be a form of extremist. And we can agree that that's probably that's a good example of extremism. I often wonder, like, what are the other 7% thinking, right? We did one survey recently, like, in the next year, do you hope to live a more meaningful life? And 76% of Americans said yes. Like, what about the other 24%, right? Just, I'm just fine, just sitting on the couch watching reruns, right? So 93% say that if you use religion to justify violence, that's extremist. But look at these other things that are now viewed to be socially extreme. 60% said that if you were to, to uh, share your faith with someone, to try to convert them, that's a type of social extremism. Isn't that crazy? Three in every five Americans think it's like awesome if you're Christian, but don't try to talk me into being one. Um, we could see that 52% of Americans say that if you believe that same-sex relationships are morally wrong, the historic teaching of, of Scripture on sexuality, that that's extremist. In fact, you're, you're bigoted if you believe that. 42% say that if you were to quit a good-paying job to pursue missions, uh, to, to give up something that is, like, really working for you and then to go do missions, like, that's really extremist. In the, in the book, we have, like, 20 different ways that people think social extremism is now happening uh, one of them is if you were to pray for a stranger in public, uh, I think 55% of Americans say that's extremists. And um, I've been thinking about this the last you know, couple, couple years really working on this project, but also recently as we've been trying to help describe this to a lot of different church communities. And uh, my, my family actually, uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we went to, to the very bottom of the Grand Canyon on the hike down to Phantom Ranch. And so that was super fun. Some of us barely made it out. 
um, alive. It was me, but that's all right. That's, don't, again, don't judge. I hiked really hard. Um, so it was a super amazing thing to go all the way 10 miles down uh, on, the, on the hike, but also you, you, you uh, lose a whole mile of verticality, right? Like you go a mile down in, uh, in altitude uh, and then a mile back up. That was the tough part, right? Um, we put a lot of our stuff on the, on the mules. That, was, that made it easier. Um, so anyway, while we were there, we were at the lodge, and I got a jacket for my daughter, um, and one of the young women who was helping us at the lodge check out, uh, she was walking around and kind of had a limp. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of, you know, how it is that we express our faith and praying for people in public. And, and so I asked her, my little boy was 11, he's, sitting, he's standing there right next to me, and I said, hey, you know, could I pray for you? And at first she was like, um, well, I guess so, because she had explained how she had done a big hike and it was really hurting and she had to come into, the, into, into work that day and it was really hard for her. So I just prayed right there in the retail aisle for her to, to, be, to be healed, to be experiencing healing, right? And, um, and like nothing miraculous happened at that moment, but it was for me an act of faithfulness. I don't know, we didn't come back and check on her, but like this idea of how do we express our faith? See, here's the interesting thing, friends. A lot of what our faith asks us to do, a lot of what scripture tells us is important for us to live is irrelevant and extreme. I'm trying to give you permission to be irrelevant and extreme. And that that the way we could be salt and light is to be extremely salty and extremely bright. Right? That's kind of corny. But... But the point is that we have to work this out in a culture that actually thinks that this is all just crazy. It's just mythology. It's like, it's good. (laughs) Two weeks ago, I was flying out to Denver, and I sat next to the actress from um, uh, the Divergent series. Uh, She was was flying economy, and and, uh, she was going out to a Bernie Sanders rally. What's her name again? Um, Come on, friends, help me out. The, 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 say it again. <laughs> One more time. One more time. Shailene Woodley. That's it. Shailene Woodley. I recognized her, but luckily I didn't know her name. Uh, so uh, we sat next to her, and she and her friend were like passing crystals back and forth. Like, man, can you like literally feel the power, the spiritual power that's in that crystal? And I'm just like, well, that's nuts, right? <laughs> So, so people believe all sorts of crazy things, but Christianity, people are changing their mind about the, the, the thing that has held us together as human beings for, you know, all of creation. And so being salt and light requires that we understand what's happening in our culture. Let me show you a few things that reflect the way Americans are now thinking about, um, about, today's, about today's society. I'm laughing now that you called it, you said George Lucas. That's pretty awesome, man. Good job. It really threw me off my game there. All right, here are three things that, that Americans are increasingly believing. 91% believe that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. When we got this data back, like I'm not often shocked as a researcher now having done so many interviews, but when we get this data back, 91%, the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. What kind of crap idea is that? <laughs> Have you ever really looked inside yourself and seen all the crazy, broken, selfish, 
sexual, like, like, have you ever really tried to do that? I mean, you'd be better off with crystals. That's a joke. That's a joke. 91% of Americans think that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 89% say that you should, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. This is one of the new moral rules. In a world where everything is extreme, it's really hard to be salt and light. Because, like, to express your faith, to be people of impact, you're constantly being pushed back. We as Christians are constantly being pushed back to say, no, don't, don't, don't really believe that stuff. Like, it's okay to believe in the prayer, prayer for healing, but don't actually go out and pray for people. It's okay to, like, maybe in your mind believe some things about sex and sexuality, but don't try to criticize somebody else for, for believing that or doing something different. The third thing I'll show you here <clears throat> is that 79% of people uh, say that people can believe whatever they want as long as their beliefs don't affect society. Is that even logically possible? No. Think about pornography. We just released a big research study from our company looking at people's attitudes towards pornography. And of course, there is an increasing acceptance of, of pornography. Younger people now, when they, when they say that they have conversations with teenagers and with their peers, they said it is increasingly viewed to be like morally neutral. It doesn't really matter. You know, like if it's okay for you, if it, if it if, you know, just go for it. Only one in 10 teenagers say that when they talk about pornography, they do in a way that says, like, that's probably not the best idea, right? Did you know that teenagers now say it's worse for you not to recycle than to view pornography? That's the way our, that's the way our world is shifting around this. But think about the impact. Like, a whole generation of men and women, and not just the next generation, but many, many people are, are struggling with this. There is the impact on our, on our marriages. There are the impact on the, the people who work in that industry. Like, to say that people can believe whatever they want, like porn is harmless, it's even good, is a, is a bad idea. And it needs to be called a bad idea. And we, as people of salt and light, need to figure out how to do that. And how can we, as individuals who sometimes have struggled, right? Maybe some of us are struggling with that. Like, how can we be a community that restores each other? in this very complicated question, even of sex and sexuality, and especially pornography. Being people of good faith, being salt and light, matters more than ever, friends. And it's never been more difficult. That's the point of spending time thinking about our culture. When we think about and understand correctly what's happening in our culture, we can be the agents of change that God asks us to be. Think of Daniel and the story from the Old Testament and his friends, and the, the complicated, like, difficult challenges that he had to be faithful, to be, you know, to use a, a, an anachronistic reference, salt and light, for, for Daniel to have be, been an agent of change in his culture. By the way, when we think about Daniel, what is the, what is the image that comes to mind? The Daniel and what? The lion's den, right? And what are his, what are his friends named? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you, VeggieTales. I think that taught a generation. <laughs> Listen, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the Babylonian names. They're actually being reprogrammed. They're, they're being brainwashed to take on the identity of the Babylonian deities. Belteshazzar means like goddess of the city. That's Daniel's name. 
there's this incredible stories that I some, sometimes think we, we, we gloss over when we think about Daniel and the impact that he had. Remember, we're thinking about how do we have impact in a culture that is really changing, that is really hostile to the things that we believe, to the, the way that Scripture asks us to live. And I think that Daniel's story is an incredible one of faithfulness, of proximity to culture, and purity to God's purposes. See, this is the important part of salt and light, is that we have to be close enough to culture, proximate enough to culture to influence it, and pure enough, like, like righteous enough, in order for God to use us. Otherwise, we look no different than the world. That's what, what Jesus himself says when he says, you are the salt of the earth. What good is it if salt has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? If, you're, if, you're, if you've lost your purity, you can't actually influence the world. If you've lost, again, let me just say this correctly, God can restore us to, all, to, to complete wholeness in Christ. So when we, when we say we lost our sense of what it means to be whole, God can restore us. But if we don't live holy lives, we can't make a difference. Now, <clears throat> I want to show you a couple things that relate to this. This is an incredible section of Scripture in Ephesians 2. You can turn in your, in your Bibles to that. Ephesians 2. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And we'll read it together. <clears throat> it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is an important thing for us to spend a few minutes talking about, because when we talk about being salt and light, being people of good faith, doing good works, sometimes we can get confused. You know, a majority of Americans believe that you can get to heaven through good works, right? It's like a classic problem in the way we think about how God looks at us, is that you can, you can aspire to, to, to Jesus. In fact, it's interesting because a lot of born-again Christians believe that they're being saved through salvation, and you can also get to heaven through good works. It's like a multiple-choice test. Just pick whichever way. Like, you know, you can choose which way is going to work for you. But that's not, that's not truth. And so when we look at this verse, I think this helps us understand something about the tension that we feel about good works versus our own salvation. And let me just show you again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, right? It is the gift of God, not a result of works. See the emphasis on works? It's not a result of anything that we do to earn God's merit or favor. You see that? So that no one may boast. But then it makes the transition, but he says, but we are his workmanship. In other words, I was created to be a geek, right? I'm, I'm created to be someone who understands numbers, Who's, who kind of thinks analytically about things. I'm, I'm, like, God made me to do this, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So here's the idea. We're not saved through our works. Jesus does that unconditionally through the work on the cross. And God asks us to be people of good works. Why? Let's look back in Matthew 5 again. the whole salt and light, he says, you you know, if you lose your saltiness, you can't be used. You're the light of the world, like a city on a uh, a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And then he ends, and this is is the the last verse in our our scripture, 
uh, Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. This is an incredible section of Scripture because what it's telling us is that Jesus himself is asking the world to hold us to account. Think of this. Like, Jesus is saying the world is going to actually measure your faithfulness, you know, not not my unconditional love for you, but it's going to measure whether you are living this out because when they see your good deeds, they will praise your Father in heaven. I had a chance to visit the UK last year, and I met a really cool couple, Simon and Marianne, who had foster care. Uh, they offer foster care to a couple young kids. Um, and the boy is, had so many behavioral challenges, like, like psychologically, is, there's just, he's broken, right? The effects of the fall, there's brokenness. But, but Simon and Marianne are being salt and light by trying to help restore God's intended purpose for this young boy. Um, they, he, she was telling me that, that he, you know, just this, this afternoon that we had dinner together, uh, that she had, she had corrected him in the way that a parent would do about something with the hose. And he literally opened up the back door of her car and took a leak in the back seat. Like, like that kind of behavioral issue. And I was like, man, how do you guys, how do, you guys do this? And she's like, well, that's just a normal day. Like, that's just what we deal with. But God every day gives us grace to love him and to, to, to just, you know, be there for him. And, you know, we're just, we just, we just, we want to be salt and light uh, in his life. That's, that's what it costs us. Now, this idea of being, um, when, when someone sees that kind of sacrifice, when someone sees what we do as Christians that cannot be explained through logic, that cannot be explained through crystals, right, that cannot be explained through any other way, like, that allows them to say, wow, you must be changed by something. What is that? Why, wh- how is Jesus working in your life? That is what Jesus is talking about, that being salt and light, that we actually get to make an impact on the world. Here's the thing. I've done a lot of research looking at how the Christian community interacts with its culture, with our world today. And, you know, we did this big study. Britt mentioned it in this book on Christian. You know, most young non-Christians say that the church is self-righteous, it's hypocritical, it's judgmental, it's anti-homosexual. In fact, 91% of young non-Christians say that's the primary way that they measure the church is that you're anti-homosexual, that you're against gay and lesbian people. These are the challenges that we have to face in a very contentious, skeptical culture. And so what I want to talk about now is how do we do this? How do we, I want to give you some very practical ideas of how it is that we can be salt and light. And I want to start with this idea of these three words that I think are going to define how we can engage our world as salt and light, as agents of impact for Jesus. Love, believe, and live. These are the three words that we have to look at when it comes to what it means for us to be agents of, salt, agents of change, salt and light on the ground level. Let me define each of these for us. The first is love, sharing ourselves for the sake of others. Being salt and light requires that we share ourselves. Simon and Marianne are sharing themselves. They're loving at great cost to be agents of change in that young man's life. Look at John 15, 13. You can flip there with me. John 15, 13. <clears throat> 
There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We can think about 1 Corinthians 13, the, the famous love chapter, and all the references to love. Love never fails. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Love, friends, is the preeminent virtue for us as Christians. It is the way we have to orient ourselves as we try to be salt and light, right? It's really easy. I do a lot of research, and, and I can say that I think a lot of, a lot of older Christians struggle with this question of how to love our culture well. They're really, really good at the believe part, but they're not so good at the love part. It's, it, 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 it's like, well, that could make cost me a little more than I want. Now, here's the thing, by the way, if you think you're going to get off the hook as a younger person, as a millennial, I actually think you as a generation are doing great at the love part, but you don't quite get the belief part all the time. And so we're going to talk a little about how to get that right-sized. Uh, but love is where we start. Let me show you one example of this. This is a practical application of how we can be salt and light when it comes to uh, some of the challenges our culture is facing. And, and here it is. Good faith Christians allow their marriages and families and their households and their hospitality to benefit others. One of the ways that we could think about this is that we as a community allow for our households to be places where people are loved and restored and listened to and heard. Some of the most important ways that ministry happens is through relationships, through the expression of love in Christian households. Now, the second aspect of this is the belief. And believe means that we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture. All right? So to be salt and light, we have to trust that God's Word has truth for us, that we can't discover ourselves by looking inside, but we actually discover ourselves by looking in the pages of Scripture. See, this is one of the really interesting things that's happening in our culture, is that all sorts of ways in which people are saying you can't discover truth through external institutions like the church or Scripture— you discover truth by looking inside. The, the, the moral compass has become the self. Like it's the age of the, like we're, we're, it's like the, the selfie soul, right? We're looking at our phones and we're like, hey, this is going to make a difference in my life. Do you know there are now more smartphones in the world than there are toilets? Which means there's more crap coming into our heads than out of our houses. <laughs> Just a little scripture verse for you. <laughs> we are a narcissistic generation, more so than maybe any time in human history. And so it is super important for us to understand that our beliefs come from trusting the countercultural truths of scripture. In that digital context, as we've interviewed millennials, we know that one in four millennials, these are teenagers and young adults, believe that there is a pretty good chance... In fact, they say in our research, definite or probable, that they will be famous or well-known by the time that they're 25. <laughs> One in four millennials think they'll be famous or well-known, right? Now, here's the thing. Some of them will be more famous than we bargained for, right? Katy Perry, who grows up in a church not far from here, um, becomes a, you know, a, a very popular person. You know how many people follow her on Twitter? Something like 85 million people follow Katy Perry on Twitter. She's like her own broadcasting company, right? She's more famous than any of us could have imagined as, 
as Christian leaders. But here's the deal. Um, the, the way we can think counterculturally about fame and ambition is that we would discover ourselves through the pages of Scripture. Ecclesiastes is an incredibly important section of Scripture in an era of narcissism, in an era of great ambition. How could we think about, how could we think about our lives in, in relation to the countercultural truth that is revealed in Ecclesiastes? To be salt and light, we have to think about ambition correctly. My daughters, Emily and Annika, are incredibly high-achieving girls. And so one of the things I do as their dad, because I'm an ambitious guy, is I help to share with them. I say, listen, I I have to regularly read Ecclesiastes. Otherwise, my soul gets really broken. I can't be salt and light. I can't lead our organization. I can't lead our family if I am thinking incorrectly about my own ambition. And so we spend time thinking about Ecclesiastes. That's an example of how we have to trust the countercultural truth of Scripture in order to, for us to be salt and light. Now, the other thing I want to really talk about in this era, era of belief, in this, in this aspect of belief, is sex and sexuality. And we'll just spend a couple of minutes talking about this, but it's super important that we, we think well about this. And so let me, let me describe um, a couple of things that are happening in terms of the trends in our culture um, the sexual revolution happened in the 1960s. A lot of things changed. Listen, human beings have struggled since the dawn of time with sex and sexuality. But what has happened in our world is there's a lot of different ways in which these questions are becoming front and center for us. And so I want to just sort of spend a little bit of, of, of time like, helping us understand how do we think and love and live well in relation to this topic. Um, first... You know how we're dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis as a global community, right? I think that there are refugees of the sexual revolution that the church is not yet prepared to help. And listen, that's all of us. We're all, this is what Jesus says. He's like, it's not even just about your behavior. It's about your mind. And, and, and if you think that you're keeping the rules in this way, you should think again because there's all, all sorts of ways in which the brokenness of sex and sexuality are expressed. And so we could talk about pornography. We could think about sex outside of marriage and the hookup culture. Um, we could think about sexualized entertainment and the choices that we're sometimes making. Um, we could think about same-sex attraction in the LGBT community. These are all really complicated questions. And I want to just sort of say, like, this isn't just some ethereal concept. We're all in this together as sexual beings, right? I know this is a really tough topic, but it relates to how do we live salt and light lives and I think this idea of, of sex and, and particularly same-sex attraction, it's like the, it's the biggest question that we're all dealing with in some ways. How do we live faithfully when it comes to these really complicated questions? And I don't have all the answers to this. But I want to say that having spent a lot of time studying Scripture, having read hundreds of books over the last few years on this issue, having literally written lots of books myself around, around how does the church orient itself on these things, I'm convinced more than ever that the historic teaching of Scripture, that sex is to be expressed in a covenant relationship, a marriage between a man and a woman, it, it matters in our day. That it's the right way for us to believe. Um, that, that, that's extremist to some. That doesn't make sense to a lot of people. I had to make a decision as a, as a leader that I would rather write about that and talk about that. That if it costs me like work as a company with some of our entertainment clients. Like, I, I'm okay with the cost that we have to, to, to have as, as, a, as, a, as a company, as a leader. 
But we have to work hard understanding some of this stuff. There, there's this whole notion now that Christians are on the wrong side of history, that, that we've been wrong on women and wrong on slavery and wrong on all sorts of things. And so on, in particular on the question of same-sex attraction, that maybe it is that we're just wrong and we just need to like, just change our point of view. And I, I think that's not, not a biblical way to think about being agents of salt and light. And, and we can say a little bit more about that, but, but there's a way for us to live in hospitality and, and loving people at cost to ourselves and believing the countercultural truth of Scripture. And then this third area where, where we can be salt and light is to live that out, bringing restoration to the broken places of creation. Being salt and light requires that we have difficult conversations, that we put ourselves in, in, in places where God can show up. Like when I prayed... That day in, it, it, at the, the Grand Canyon Lodge, like, like, it is a silly and extremist thing to do to imagine that you could say some words in a store and that someone might experience a physical healing or be encouraged in some way. But it's worth us putting ourselves out there. And so these difficult conversations matter. Let me show you this incredible verse. Uh, this is in Colossians 4, 4, verses 5 and 6. Paul writes, Live wisely. <clears throat> among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. We have to love people at personal cost to ourselves. We have to trust the countercultural truth of Scripture. And then we have to put ourselves out there and bring restoration into the broken places of creation. And I want to tell just a story that's it's personal. It's a little hard for me to tell, but it's worth, worth you guys ha- having a window into this experience for me. My brother-in-law, Brian, um, um, he visited our house about 20 years ago. He was in the military, um, had been married a couple of times. He and one of the guys from the military stopped by our, by our house in, uh, in Ventura about 20 years ago on their way through town. And... Um, and I asked, I asked my wife after that, you know, I was like, hey, it was really great to, to see your brother. And, uh, and she said, well, do you, so something weird about his friend Eladio? And um, I said, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think so. I don't have any idea. But, but s- soon enough, we discovered that they were in a same-sex relationship. And, you know, like, oh, man, I, we had no idea that he was same-sex attracted and was in a gay relationship. And <laughs> so, you know, we were always very kind to him. And we'd have dinner when we were in town together, et cetera. But a few years ago, uh, my brother-in-law, Brian, passed away from HIV-AIDS. And, um, and I have to tell you, friends, that, like, I didn't even go to his, his la- I didn't visit him uh, during his last few weeks. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't there for him as a brother-in-law. I wasn't there for him as, as a Christian. I wasn't there for him as a human being. And it's so easy for us to think about all these concepts. I mean, I've even literally written the book, right, around the perceptions of a generation that it's anti-homosexual, uh, that was before he passed away, right? And, and I just want to confess, like, I really missed the opportunity to be salt and light in his life. Now, here's how this might have worked. What if, during those first few years when we began to understand what was happening, I wonder if we had offered him a place to live? Because some of my friends who are same-sex attracted say, listen, I could live without sex, but I can't live without intimacy, And how is it that we as a Christian community could be a place of intimacy, a place of friendship, 
a place of holistic relationship where we can actually help ourselves become the people God intended. And I just want to confess to you guys, I know this is the first time many of you have even met me or seen me, right? But I'm part of this church. This is a community where we can have a family where we can have a, a conversation about the tough parts of our lives. We've been through a lot as a church through the years. And I just want to like remind us that when we talk about being salt and light, this isn't just a conceptual idea. This is about the ways that we would orient our lives to live and to love and to believe what God is asking us to do. And I dropped the ball. What if I had asked Uncle Brian to be a bigger part of our kids' lives? There are all sorts of ways that I miss the boat in being salt and light uh, to my, uh, my brother-in-law, Brian. So that's a heavy thing. But here's the good news about all this is that God redeems and forgives. He's forgiven me for my own self-righteousness in those instances. And I want to show you this really cool verse as we sort of turn to home here and think about how it is that we could do this. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Do you know that there are good, amazing things that this community is already doing, that reality is already has boots on the ground and acts of love and the things that you guys are already doing in the world? Like, let's do more of that. Let's find ways of, of being on mission with Jesus in ways that we hadn't even anticipated. Um, my daughter, Emily, she's 16. She raised a guide dog puppy. And we did it as an act of love um, through our faith uh, to help, you know, give sight to a blind person. And uh, Paige was her name. She was half lab, half golden. Many tears were shed by our family when we gave her up after 16 months of raising her. We kind of raised her pretty well. <laughs> she passed, and she, uh, she, she is now serving a blind woman uh, in Indiana, right? See, like, we're trying to be salt and light through the act of, of caring for a small puppy and, and restoring the broken parts of creation by being agents of change and making an impact. That's an example. Let's do that more. Let's find ways to motivate one another. Let's pray for more people in our, in our, in our culture. You might begin to think, of your, think, think to yourself, in what ways are you needing to grow in terms of love? In what ways are you needing to grow in terms of your belief and your trust in the countercultural truth of Scripture? In what ways are you needing to, to have some of those difficult conversations and to live out your faith in ways that you hadn't, you hadn't expected before this morning? Guys, I, I think this is such an incredible opportunity that we have as the church to help people who have screwed up, which includes us, be people of, of good faith, to be, to be restored into right order. And I want to just share with you that one of the cool things about this research, it's, it's really, in some ways, people sometimes say that we have the spiritual gift of discouragement by being researchers, Right, because we're always like constantly looking at these hard numbers, but it's not discouraging when you think that the culture that we live in today is actually ripe for revival. The conditions that we have today, where people are like holding crystals because they can feel the spiritual energy. I mean, come on, guys! Jesus has more energy than crystals, right? Like, there's a way for us to be salt and light in our world that could restore people. In your mind's eye, could you see in a year from now if we were to commit, to our, commit ourselves to being salt and light, 
right? It's, it's a big, heavy concept. It's, it's like a clear imagery. But if we were to commit ourselves as the people of reality in Ventura and Carpinteria and Santa Barbara, just to love people well and to believe the truth of Scripture and to live that out, think of the ways that we could restore people to God's intent, that we could be little priests and kings in the image of Jesus to help them understand what God has intended them to do, and that we as a church could be revived as a part of that. That is amazing. That is a cool opportunity for us as we get to be salt and light. I'm going to ask the worship guys to come up here as we close. But I want to I think about this last thing as we, as we end our time. To bring about good in the world, to be salt and light, we have to let God restore us first. To bind up our own brokenness every day so that we can be used in the world. So this isn't just like, hey, just really try harder and do more good works because you can't earn God's favor by doing good works. But you can do good in the world because of what Jesus does in our own hearts. To make an impact, to be salt and light, we ourselves have to be transformed. And I want you to just picture God's heart in this. That God cares so much for us. I mean, he could do all of this in his own power, in his own way, but he chooses to use us, broken as we are. He wants to use us. He chooses to do this. He has always gotten great pleasure out of doing his work through broken people. And that he wants to use us in his story is the greatest redemption story ever. It's the ultimate of restoration. Our own hearts are put right before a holy king so that we can partner with Jesus to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord, in the inadequacy of the words that we use, would your spirit come and help us to see maybe a conversation that we need to have, a way that we need to love someone at, at, at cost to ourselves, a way that we could use our household for hospitality, a way, Lord, that we could believe again in the countercultural truth of Scripture, that we could live this out as agents of salt and light, as people who want to do your good deeds in the world. And Lord, as people see those good deeds, would they be transformed themselves? Would they, them, they themselves, Lord, be able to see the light that is reflected in us and through us? That is not about our incredible efforts, but it's about you about you, the great light, the true light that is reshaping us, that is, that is in fact changing who we are and changing our communities. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.